Better? Yeah. Now we're cooking. All right. Well, I need to commend you for staying with us in the Bible study, investing in this. Today, I think we really will see a payoff as we hit uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be able to engage in the Scripture in a way that you just can't do normally. And it comes from the work that we've done. We've been able in understand David, understand the world a little bit, understand the dynamics of what's going on. A lot of times we, we know, you know, we're reading God's Word, okay? And we know it says something to us now. But the, the dynamics of that, I think a lot of times elude us. This isn't a fortune cookie. This isn't, oh, well, this means this to me. You're receiving words from an eternal God. And when he speaks these words, I mean, literally, it's life. But it's, it's meant for the people that heard it. It's meant for people that have heard it. And then it's meant for us today. I mean, it's this, this huge transforming kind of thing. And so it's, it's two-dimensional. It's three-dimensional. Today, I think we'll see it's, it's four-dimensional. We're definitely in the golden age of David, which is awesome. And we're going to get just a little hint of the direction David's life should have gone. So hold on to this today. Uh, the value of this is for you to see yourself in this, this account, this story. So let's have a quick word of prayer, and we'll, we'll start. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to begin today humbly before you. We've heard it a couple of times now that we need to inquire of you to listen for your purpose and your direction. Father, we hear a lot of times that if we'll be the men that you've called us to be, our life will be different, the world will be different. We thank you today that we can see an example of how that actually works. Help us open our minds as we open your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 8. One of the reasons I love the Old Testament, back to some killing. Nothing that takes spirituality like a little bit of battle. So chapter 8, verse 1. After this... David subdued and humbled the Philistines by conquering where? Gath. Man, we've talked about this town probably more than we've talked about Jerusalem. Whose hometown is Gath? Goliath's. Don't you know the people in that town are sick to death of David? My gosh, you come and live with us and then you betray us and now you come back. But talk about it being over for the Philistines. They had been this big boogeyman. Remember, they were Greeks, in essence, proto-Greeks, Mycenaeans, that had settled along the coast in Israel. They had brought iron weapons, heavy infantry tactics, shields, body armor, uh, metal armor, greaves, the helmets, the whole big deal. They were always numerically inferior to Israel, but they were tough. They were tough. And so what did David learn from them? Yeah. 
He learned how to fight like them. He learned how to do the iron. He, he learned from his enemies. And so it served him well. It'll serve him well today. He's moved up to another level of combat. I know this is shocking, so prepare yourselves. The Middle East has always been a cradle of conflict. It really has. And one of the things that happens is the, the pace of military technology around Israel is always top-notch. I mean, we're talking Iron Age right now in the ancient Near East. If we jumped over to Europe, it's still the Bronze Age. Why? Because they fight much harder in the Middle East, and the fortresses that defend their cities are bigger. The military technologies are just better because there's constant conflict. And so David has taken this first step into iron weapons, heavy infantry tactics, and so he's got some pieces on the board, so to speak. But now he has beaten the snot out of uh, the Philistines, and they're done. Remember, they've been this boogeyman. They destroyed Saul's kingdom, and it's, it's just over. Not only do they not threaten Israel anymore, but their main capital city, David now controls. So he is a gifted military strategist. He's a gifted warrior. He, he has kicked butt. Uh, just to give a little perspective here, so the red is the united kingdom of what David started with, and you're going to see both in the sort of yellow and the red how he's going to be really begin to move Israel from just a little bitty sort of local power to a very much a regional power. And I, I know this is hard. There, there's another map, I guess the next one. Uh, yeah, the, these are the trade routes, which are hugely significant. We're coming to appreciate in ancient times. Uh, this is where the money is. This is where the, the goods flow. Every time a commodity comes from another area and it passes through your area, they invent this thing about, our roads are very dangerous. Um, we need to invest in infrastructure. So if you pay us, we will make sure that your products get to market safely. Isn't that interesting? So we have the King's Highway coming out of Egypt. They have ivory. They have gold, uh, ostrich feathers, ostrich eggs. And so they pass right up here. And it's not quite, where is it? Uh, Gath is there. So what David is beginning to do is there's this trade route. And he could have taken Ashkelon. He could have taken Gaza. But he takes Gath. And of course, what is that? It's it's a yeah, it's it's a checkpoint for the the trade routes. There's also uh, copper that's coming up from Timna, so he controls that. In a few minutes, we're going to see him take Damascus, which is for this whole region here a huge checkpoint. Solomon is so wealthy because of what David starts. They move again from, again, a mountain kingdom of nobody to controlling these trade routes. So, I mean, the, the olive oil, 
that they can produce. They can control that. The iron that's coming from the south, the horses, they're, they're getting their little piece of all of this. I think by God's design, they're in a unique position. If they can control this, they can be a very, very wealthy, significant kingdom. They can, in a sense, punch beyond their weight. But we're not quite there yet. We've taken out the Philistines. We now control the coastal uh, King's Highway for the trade route. Doing good. Verse 2. David also conquered the land of the Moabites. Now please tell me you remember the Moabites. going to grill this one into you. Who are the Moabites? Yes. They're what? Yes. These are the hillbillies. So remember, Moab. Uh, Hebrews almost always say bees as V's. So Moab, like Ab, Abba, father. And it means from my father. So these are Lot's children. Remember his daughters who grew up in Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, don't, uh, don't worry. We can send our kids to private school. It'll be okay. We can live in Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. So the girls come up with the idea, hey, let's get daddy drunk and we'll have kids. And so they do it twice. These are Hebrews, but they're not Israelites. So they're kind of that distant relation that you're like, oh, I can't believe we're related to these people. Um, and they're always just causing problems. So David just cleans up with them. Uh, again, these are they're nobodies. They had given him problems earlier in his reign, remember? And they tried to steal his family. And so he, he's got some bad blood here. But he, he moves in. He takes out Moab. And then we see an interesting side of David. After he conquers the Moabites, he made the people lie down on the ground in a row. And he measured them off in groups with lengths of rope. He measured off two groups to be executed for every one group to be spared. The Moabites who spared became David's servants, uh, yeah, and they brought him tribute money. So what did he just do? I'm not messing with you people anymore. He's lining them up. And I mean, this is something out of World War II, just... Um, you've, you've given us grief. This is not a God command. Uh, this is this is pretty pretty harsh here. Uh, I don't I don't think Scripture is necessarily endorsing this. Um, David can solve the problem when he wants to solve the problem, though. Now the crazy thing is, if this had been an Egyptian army or uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, and an Aramean army, uh, they definitely would have killed uh, the vast majority of them or crippled them and then used them as slaves. So in a kind of bizarre way, David is being a little bit more merciful in that he's allowing some to return, but he also has an advantage, right? Because they're going to continue to raise livestock. Some will do farming, not many but he's going to get the tribute from that. 
So there, there's a financial investment, but his main aim is to cripple them and make sure that they won't ever threaten him again. Um, can we do the, the next map? Let's see. Oh, no, it's a scripture. Anyway, that'll work. So the Moabites are down here. Uh, they don't particularly live in gray area. It's very deserty. It's very rough. But David is, in essence, securing his flank. So he's taken out the Philistines here. He's going to take the Moabites here. And then he's going to begin to shift north. So he didn't want them causing problems in the south. But the spiritual lesson in all this is David is between two enemies. He has overcome the Philistines that dominated his childhood. Since he was a boy in Goliath, all we've heard about the Philistines. So they're done. He had his own personal struggle with the Moabites, and so he's resolved that. So think about in your life, the challenges, the, the things that you go through, the enemies, if you will, that you face. Many of us are getting to the stage in life where we've beaten back a lot of those enemies. I mean, we've, we've had some success. We've had some victories. We're pretty much got a life going. So what happens when your childhood enemy is under control? Where, where does it go next? And what does God intend to do with your life? Is it just about what you can do? Or is it about what you can do for the future? For, in a sense, your nation, your, your people? So, in all that I'm going to go through right now, sort of see there's two points. Uh, where David was in his childhood with the Philistines, that enemy, and then the enemy that's coming. So let me take us to verse 3. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. Verse 3, David also destroyed the forces of Hadadezer, son of Rehav, king of Zobah. When Hadadezer marched out to strengthen his control along the Euphrates River, David captured 1,700 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers. Then he crippled all but one of the chariot horses. When the Arameans from Damascus arrived to help Hadadezer, David killed 22,000 of them. Then he placed several army garrisons in Damascus, the Aramean capital. And the Arameans became David's subject and brought him tribute. So the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David brought the gold shields of Hadadezer's officers to Jerusalem, along with a large amount of bronze from Hadadezer's city of Teva and Barothai. Okay, a lot, of, a lot of strange names, different names that we've talked about before, but I, I don't know if it's in there. You, you might need to go back, Ken, to the, the scroll. In World War II, there, World War I, there was a Canadian officer, um, James Henry Tandley, who uh, captured, had to get a gunpoint, a Bavarian private whose birth name was Schickelgruber. I kid you not, but he would go by the name Hitler. And so this Canadian had at gunpoint Hitler in World War I. 
pull the trigger. Is, did his, his photo come out? Uh, Tandley? Yeah. Talk about missed opportunity of the world. Yeah, there he is right there. Yeah. Now, he was decorated, but dude, this was your marksman opportunity. How much could he have changed the world? Now, he was a good man. Um, Hitler was a, was a weenie, um, but he let him go. And it's one of those moments in history where you think, oh, if it had just gone another way. David has now encountered the Aramean people. And this is where I think you see God's word change things on, on a level of time. Let me let you in on the secret. The Aramean people will ultimately destroy the Jews. David's kingdom, everything that he builds, will be destroyed by the Arameans. The Jews will go again to live as slaves under the Arameans. It will get so bad that the names that Jews will use will be Aramaic names. By the New Testament, what language does Jesus speak? Aramaic. They will speak the language of these conquerors, not Hebrew. And so David is having this surreal moment where he is meeting his executioners. Not his. His kingdom will be fine. But this is the next enemy. You know what it's like, and forgive me for being a nerd, um, Star Trek. Remember when Q took the Enterprise to meet the Borg? I don't know if any of you remember this. So, yeah, it's um, the Borg are these huge enemies, bigger, badder than anything that's ever been seen before. And so this weird creature, Q, takes the, the Enterprise and they show them, oh, one day you're going to face these Borg. That's what God is doing for, for David. You've beat your Philistines. Good job. But that's what I meant you to do. I've created you to be this man. David, you are good. You're a good fighter. And when you fight in the way that I've prepared you, you are unbeatable. David, I think, should be probably put up there with Napoleon in just a minute because the battles he wins, this is the greatest battle of his life. And we tend to brush over it. But David is still thinking, yeah, Philistines, Moabites, I can beat them up. But Arameans... Arameans are a whole different category of people. And David is kicking butt. So let me try. Um, can we... It won't work. Um, can we go back to the picture of the charioteers? I think it's towards the beginning. Or, yeah, right there. All right. These are called the Mirianu. Um, it is, like I said, it, in the, the cradle of conflict in the Middle East, warfare is just going and going and going and going. David, like we said, made this jump from um, bronze tools to iron weapons and heavily armed infantry. But the bigger, more powerful states uh, have already moved beyond that. And one of the things they're adding to warfare is mobility. 
And still today, we see that as a huge value, right? It's not just slow marching troops, but if you can move fast, you can be armored, you can do a lot of damage. And so what tends to happen in the bigger, more powerful states in this area is they have heavily fortified cities. I mean, the likes of which we won't see until the Middle Ages in Europe. I mean, these are heavily fortified castles. But they have basically what we could call knights. The... the, the the general term that everybody picks up, the, the Bible, uh, the, the Hebrews, uh, the Egyptians, are these Marianu. And you can see they're, I mean, armored from neck to, to heel. They're specialized charioteers that really are like knights. Um, they're, they're nobles. They dedicate themselves to, to warfare their whole life. You have a driver. You have an archer. And also he'll use spears. But these guys are the best of the best right now. They can come in fast. They'll unleash everything on you. And before you can turn to do anything, they're away. It's not like the movies where the charioteers drive into the infantry and, you know, kill their horse and break their chariot. I mean, they'll come at you and fire and then leave. Come at you and fire and leave. This is what we'll see later on with the Mongols, right? They'll, they'll be very fast and then they'll get out. These guys are, are devastating. And what does David have to fight them? Infantry. Israel can't afford horses. Um, horses. Horses are just beautiful animals, aren't they? They just take care of themselves. I mean, it's like a goat. You just put them out in a field, and they'll feed and, and take care of them. God Almighty, a horse is a lot of work, right? My granddad had a stable because he didn't have enough to do. He decided in his old age, I'm just going to open a stable. And oh, I mean, I run from that place because all the work that it took. But in the ancient Near East, it took a lot of money, a lot of wealth in order to, to keep these horses, to keep these men in armor. So again, these are knights. We won't see this until, again, the Middle Ages, almost a thousand years later in Europe. But these are the best of the best. And David marches up right in the middle of them and just beats them down. I mean, did, did you get the, the numbers here? David captured 1,700 charioteers. Holy moly. Because I'm Kurt, I read uh, a lot of history. There's uh, accounts of the Egyptians fighting these Marianu. And this is the height of the Egyptian empire. The Egyptians also have chariots and infantry. The Egyptians call it a good day when they took 500 of these knights. Okay? Egypt has a much, much larger army, like 10 times what David can field. And 500, and the Egyptians wouldn't kill them. They would take them and have them serve in the Egyptian army because they're just that good. And David has 1,700 of them. 20,000 foot soldiers. And then what does David do with the horses? Yeah, he, he cuts the Achilles. Why does he do that? You don't want to take care of them? We want to take care of them. So don't call animal cruelty. Um, they can take care of them. They don't have the pasture land. They don't have the money. Israel's still, you know, David's getting them there. They're, they're trying. 
uh, to get the trade routes, but they just can't do this. Are you kidding? To feed the horses that it would take? It's, it's beyond them. They're in a mountainous kingdom. And for the most part, once they control the coastal areas, they need the horses. When you move up to Syria and the northern plains, but um, they, they just can't do it. And there's actually a scripture where God warns them, don't do this. Um, it's out of First Chronicles. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it's Deuteronomy, the next one. Yeah. So way back in the time of Moses, God said the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. So Egypt is the horse breeding capital of the world. Uh, they have the wealth, they have the fields, they have the Nile River that floods, so they can raise some of the best stallions, uh, best horses, best charioteer horses. But God doesn't want that sort of transformation of Israel. Um, in, in, and this is a whole other Bible study, but in many ways, God created Israel as the perfect middle class. And it's bizarre when you look at it. I mean, the individual landowners, he doesn't want the super rich. He doesn't want the exploited poor. He, he wants the, the middle class sort of kingdom. And one of the ways they stay out of that is creating these knightly class of people that, uh, that the horses would, would involve. So David has to uh, just do away with the horses. Now, this is a battle... I would love, love to get more detail on. How did David do this? He took out not only one, but two of these city-states. And he ends up controlling Damascus. I cannot tell you how significant that is. Damascus is, in terms of the interior, the largest, wealthiest city between Egypt and what will become Assyria. This is like David taking, I don't know, Chicago. It's not quite New York City, but it's, it's something. And how he did it, it's God for sure, but this is David. This is David doing what David can do. He can fight. He can flank. He can solve problems on his feet. He probably, well, I know he had that, that iron core um, that must have got into these chariots. I, he just, I don't know what he did. It's just, it's amazing. And this is the last time that David will mess with these guys. David could have changed history here completely. What's going to happen um, if we can go, there's a world map. Oh, the other way. Sorry. Yeah, this one. So I'll I'll do this real quick or try to. Um, no, it's, you're fine. All right. The Arameans are a tribal group, kind of like the Israelites. So they have settled in different areas. So, like in Judah's or Israel's case, you've got Judah, you've got Israel to spread all around. But look up north to Damascus. So there are a group of Arameans that are settled there. There's also a group that are settled over here in Ur, which is incidentally where Abraham came from. 
All right, so they are the same group of people, but they just have different lands. They've been able to insert themselves. Always powerful, but separated. So the Arameans in the West, they'll have conflict with David. David will have dominion over them until the time of Solomon, and then they break free again. But they are, they are very powerful amongst very powerful neighbors. Later on, and that, what this map is showing, is the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians are, are unbelievably brutal. They master genocide. And so if you mess with the Assyrians, they will wipe you out. Sort of like David was doing with the Moabites. I, I don't want to fight you again, so I will kill you. So, the, long story made short, the Assyrians wipe out all of the Arameans in the West. Kill them dead to a person. They do the same thing to northern Israel. The only other group of these people that survive are over here. What do you do if half of your nation is killed by a group of people? You learn ways to kill them back. And so the, through the biblical history, and we'll follow this, the Arameans transform themselves, the surviving tribe, into these hate-filled monsters, and they're going to destroy the Assyrians. So they end up doing it. They move from Ur into Babylon, and they put together this coalition that eventually moves on Nineveh to the north, and they wipe out the, the Assyrians. The Arameans, and that's what they always are, but they start to change their names. First, they become Chaldeans, and then when they take Babylon, they start calling themselves Babylonians. They're not really native Babylonians, but they control it. So historically, we call them Neo-Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, that you know of biblically, is one of these guys. He is an Aramean. That's his language. That's his ethnicity. But it's this little pocket here that um, ended up destroying the north because they remember what happened to their people to the west. So that's centuries in the future. But see what I mean? David is having this unbelievable encounter. After chapter 8, David is going to take a left turn and he's not going to go in the battlefield anymore. David's struggles are going to be with Bathsheba and his kids. Who God meant David to be, this is what I meant. This is a rare view of what could have happened. What if David had prepared his people to one day fight the Arameans? What if he had made that next military leap, moving from the iron heavy infantry to the charioteers, and eventually it turns into horseback. Um, that's what the Babylonians are, are really, really good at. David could have prepared his nation for that, but he doesn't do it. Not at all. He sort of lives off the riches. I beat my Philistines. My days are battle are done. So I leave you with that this morning. Honestly, where are you in your life? Between your Philistines and your Arameans, where are you? If you could defeat a Hitler, if you could save your great, 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 great grandchildren, would you do it?
The legacy in terms of faith, of what you share, of the battles, the things that you learn, the problems that you solve, the things that you overcome, you can bless generation after generation. Remember what God said to David, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build a house out of you. And we think, oh yeah, it's, it's the Messiah. And it's, yeah, it is that. That's, that's where it's going. But it was even bigger than that. There was a chance here for David to create a nation, a kingdom, that would have blessed generation after generation after generation. And so God arranges this, this appointment between your executioner. Um, one of the things that is, I run out of time here, but uh, one of the places nations stored money was in their temples. And so David will take from the Aramean city the gold shields. So they decorate with these, but this is your Fort Knox. This is your reserves. Uh, so David's like, yeah, we'll take this to the temple. I, I like to decorate with gold. It's my favorite color. I just love it. Um, one of the day, uh, Nebuchadnezzar will take those shields back. So Scripture is very aware of the connections between those, those two events. So, yeah. I do. And to prepare the people to, to be that next level. So, there it is, gentlemen. You may be able to beat up a Moabite or a Philistine like nobody's business, but for the sake of God, the sake of your kids, there's Arameans out there, and they're big and nasty. But you can beat them. Questions? So you said that uh, there's always been conflict in that area. Yeah. Why is there still conflict today? Do I? Why is there still conflict today? Because of Israel. Um, I mean, it's just it's God's chosen, and people are always going to try to take that out. And also, you know, the trade routes, the oil. I mean, not that they couldn't shut down the oil and we'd be just fine, right? I mean, we could take care of our own oil. We don't need it from over there. But um, there's still oil, and so we were still fighting over it. If you say so, I, I, I don't know. They, yeah. I, they, they spend their money on bad things. Um, why do you think it was God's desire for David to take out the Arameans? And I ask this in light of that's the people he uses to return Israel to him a few hundred years down the road. So it's actually the Persians and not the Arameans that will do it. So you're talking about be able to return? Well, when Babylon comes and whips their butt because they're heading in the wrong direction, it's time for a refocus here. Right. Said Nebuchadnezzar was an Aramean. Right. So they end up becoming God's punishing stick, right? Uh, I definitely think that's sort of God's plan B. Um, that if David had set a better course, um, that stuff wouldn't have been necessary. David has had just a little bitty taste of success 
and he sort of gives up. I'm going home. I'm going hunting. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm. Right. So remember, and I, I love you guys because this is where Scripture needs to get for us. God's point in the Bible is not to finish a plot, right? It's it's not just to finish the story. His point is to teach us choices. So if he could have taught the nation of Israel to be faithful in a better way at the time of David, then we don't have to go down the Aramean route. We don't have to go to the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. But that's what we chose to do, and so that's where we ended up. So it's not like that was his plan A, but we, we screwed the pooch. So technical term. That's all I understand. <laughs> not that way. Yeah, yeah. So see if you encounter the Aramean today. Big and bad. I think you can handle it, though. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word today. An event in David's life that we don't even think he understood the full depths of. We thank you today that we can cheat and look back in history and see those, those moments when somebody walks over our grave, when we meet the person that will replace us. But help us to understand the great lesson that you are the God of time, the master of all things. And what you call and ask us to do is not just for our sake and our life, but for the sake of generation upon generation to come. So help us to get it right. Help us to be the men that we're meant to be. We know that we've got to fight sometimes. We've got to fight and defeat foes so that other people don't have to. Help us not to make ourselves proud because we can defeat yesterday's enemy. May we be looking forward for the next foil, the next enemy, because we know as we rely on you more than ourselves, we will become who we're meant to be. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.